For those who have not yet heard, the addiction community is celebrating big news at Washington, D.C., and I am dancing around on a cloud in celebration. We have X'd the X waiver. The X waiver is a restriction on doctors, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants from prescribing buprenorphine, a treatment for opiate use disorder. Before the announcement last Thursday, physicians needed an eight-hour course and physician extenders needed 24 hours of education to obtain an X waiver that allowed them to prescribe a single drug, buprenorphine. There were one million physicians who could prescribe opioids, but only 66,000 who could prescribe treatment for opiate use disorder. This imbalance is now changed. The barrier lift comes at the heels of the 2020 very grim overdose data. We have a historic high of 83,000 overdose deaths, representing a 21% increase of the last year. Fentanyl deaths accounted for a nearly 45% increase. I've been working on Xing the X waiver for a year, from changing the hearts and minds of leaders in Washington, DC, to writing action memos and engaging the media. A special shout out to the American College of Emergency Physicians for writing and changing letters at a moment's notice and to my friends at the Pew Foundation, Liz Conley and Libby Jones, who gave relentless advocacy and support. A big thank you and credit goes to Director Jim Carroll of ONDCP, America's drug czar, who's the one who really pushed to make this happen. He was supported by Dr. Nora Wolkoff, Director of NIDA, and Admiral Brett Jawa, Assistant Secretary for Health. Eliminating the X waiver will not eliminate addiction or overdoses, but it's a step in the right direction for addiction treatment. And today, we're celebrating. Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hey there, we have another very special episode for you today with Secretary Dr. Ben Carson. We're going to talk about the trifecta of substance use disorder with mental health and homelessness. I met Dr. Carson while working at the White House. I took my daughters to see a show at the Kennedy Center. I confess that I wanted to show off to my daughters that we get to sit in the president's box. When the president and his close circle are not using the box, employees of the executive office of the president are able to obtain tickets. For me, it is interesting to chit-chat with other people seated at the box and learn about them. On this day, sitting next to us at the Kennedy Center was Andrew Hughes, the chief of staff of Ben Carson. I mentioned that I was a great fan and, consistent with my personality, had ideas to share. The next day, I was at the HUD. The Housing and Urban Development Building is a massive, concrete, curvilinear structure and office of Secretary Ben Carson. Let me share with you a little bit about Dr. Carson. 
He was sworn as the 17th Secretary of the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development. His childhood experiences drives his passion to this day. He was born in Detroit and raised by a single mother with a third grade education who worked several jobs to support her family. He rose from poverty to becoming a philanthropist. While his mother was illiterate, he authored nine books, and his mother eventually received her education and even obtained a doctorate. For those unfamiliar with the study of medicine, a neurosurgeon is on the top of the food chain when it comes to the status of doctors. That's because it's competitive and requires many more years of training. A pediatrician, family practitioner, or emergency doctor typically do three extra years of training after medical school. To become a neurosurgeon, it's not only more competitive, but it takes seven years after medical school. Dr. Carson topped that off with additional training to become a pediatric neurosurgeon. At 33 years old, he was the youngest director of the pediatric neurosurgery department at John Hopkins. He performed the very first successful separation of conjoint twins. Dr. Carson received dozens of honors and awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And in 2016, he was candidate for U.S. president. Dr. Carson is not just a modern-day genius he is also very generous. He and his wife are active in philanthropy and founded the Carson Scholars Fund, which recognizes young people of all backgrounds for academic accomplishments. The fund operates in all 50 states and awards more than $7.3 million in scholarships. You will meet Dr. Carson here at High Truths and see for yourself that his greatest asset is not just his brilliant mind, but his kind soul. You can find Dr. Carson's bio and key housing messages on the High Truths show notes for this episode. Secretary Dr. Ben Carson, it's an honor to have you here on High Truths. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Should I address you, Secretary, Doctor, both together? It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> I guess for the next few days. <laughs> we'll do Secretary. <laughs> Uh, yeah, since you have a few days left as being secretary. Um, so anyway, I'm very, very happy to, to see you and have you here on uh, High Truths. I remember fondly uh, the meeting uh, we had at your office. Yeah. And um, Dr. Carson, as we start this uh, podcast and, and interview, can you tell our listeners why? Like, why would a world-renowned neurosurgeon choose to be Secretary of Housing and Urban Development? Well, that's a, a very good question. Um, sometimes I ask myself that too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's not really not that different, you know, as a pediatric neurosurgeon, uh, particularly in a city like Baltimore. There was so many times when, you know, I would spend enormous amounts of time and effort uh, trying to give a child a second chance who lived in East Baltimore. And most of the times we were successful. And then I'd have to send them back into this horrendous environment. Uh-uh. And uh, by being the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, there's been an opportunity to look at that situation and to make some changes. 
And, uh, you know, it's a, a long process because it took a long time for things to get that way. But uh, we've made some substantial progress and will continue uh, even outside of government to work on those issues. Yeah. And you're a living example, I think, of the American dream born in poverty and showing thanks for your success by giving back to the community in government service and your philanthropy. Um, yes, and I, and I hope also uh, to provide an example of you know, how to do things without the vitriol, the division and the hatred. Uh, that just is a completely unnecessary component that only complicates things. I love that about you. And I try to, to do that myself in my, in my life as well. Um, Dr. Carson, can you explain what is HUD and, and some of your accomplishments? Well, uh, housing and urban development. Uh, and it's concerned with a lot more than just urban areas, obviously with the suburbs, the exurbs, the rural areas as well. Um, providing safe, uh, adequate, decent housing uh, opportunities for all Americans. Because without housing, pretty much every other aspect of your life falls apart. So it really becomes an essential part of development of every human being and every family and every society and every nation. So it is the building block. And uh, the reason that uh, I was so much drawn to HUD as opposed to any other uh, area is because I grew up poor and uh, I know the importance of having the right kind of support in order to escape poverty. And, uh, you know, we need to be able to look at some of the studies and we need to conform some of the policies to the studies, actually deal with, with data uh, and evidence. For instance, uh, there was a Brookings uh, study on poverty, a very big study. And it concluded at the end that there were three things a person could do that would reduce their likelihood of living in poverty to 2% or less. And those three things were number one, finish high school. Number two, get married. And number three, wait until you're married to have children. You do those three things, you have a 2% or less chance of living in poverty. That should tell us something about the kinds of policies we should be enacting. Wow. I like your motto about housing first, second, and third. That's what I thought you were going to talk about. Well, that's very important because, you know, there have been those who say housing first is the only thing that's important. Housing first meaning just get them off the street. And that is a good thing to do because it actually costs more to keep them on the street than to keep them off the street. But then that's where compassion then kicks in. Housing second is figuring out why they were on the street in the first place. That's so important. And then housing third, fix it. So get them off the street, find out why they're on the street and then fix it. That way, you don't just keep accumulating more and more people. We have to be able to think into the future and recognize if we have policies that simply allow for the accumulation of dependency, we eventually reach a tipping point 
or we don't have the ability financially to take care of them. I think that's the doctor in you because you have an analogy of medicine to the problem with housing, of making the diagnosis, treating it with medicine, and then looking for the underlying cause for the cure, the disease. Exactly. I love that. So at High Truths, we talk about solutions for drugs and addictions. And I want to talk to you about the trifecta of drug addiction, mental health, and homelessness. And so I collected some questions from my emergency physician colleagues. They are all board members of IEPC, Independent Emergency Physicians Consortium. These hero emergency physicians own their own small business emergency group and have resisted being part of a giant corporation. The first one is Dr. Michael Gertz. He's an IEPC physician from Antelope Valley Hospital. And Dr. Gertz notes that California has almost 50% of all unsheltered homeless in the United States. And many homeless patients have drug and alcohol addiction. I think the national statistics is 38% have alcoholism and 26% have drug addiction. In California, methamphetamine and homelessness have a very strong association. And Dr. Gertz asks, what are some of the best solutions you have seen or propose to address the combination drug and homeless crisis? Well, you know, that's one of the uh, areas where uh, we've, we've had tremendous success with the veteran population. Mm -hmm. uh, has reduced uh, veteran homelessness over the last 10 to 12 years by 50%. And it's because you're not only concentrating on getting them off the street and into a home, but also providing the wraparound services. Each one of them has a case manager who can deal specifically with the addiction problems. And you know, a lot of the homeless people that you see in Skid Row and various places around California, uh, they have some very significant addiction issues. And you could actually give them a place and they'll still end up on the street. Uh, so unless you actually have an active program in which you can support them, which you can give them counseling, in which you can um, manage their addiction, uh, you really haven't accomplished very much. Yeah, that's so important. And the veterans accomplishment, that's really a nice role model. When we met at your office, I mentioned the sense that we were importing homeless to California, that my patients in the emergency department came from Georgia, Iowa, Chicago, straight from the Greyhound bus to our emergency department, where they know the emergency department is America's safety net and center for resources. And you visited Los Angeles and you made my day when you tweeted LA first. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if you remember that, but do you feel that that we're, we're importing homeless with, um, with policies? Uh, there's no question that the policies can be very detrimental if they're not thought through carefully. And uh, I just want to take a moment to, to thank you personally for the enormous effort that you've put into this over the, over the years. And uh, it's been able to impact many people in a very positive way. One person really can make a difference. But there's no question that policies that enable uh, homelessness is a problem. And one of the things that happens in a place like Los Angeles is you have excessive costs because you have so many regulations. And every regulation adds costs to the construction. So by the time you get through 
constructing a unit, it costs so much that uh, the average spent on each homeless person in LA is about $400,000. Now, what if, what if you use that in an intelligent way? What could you do with $400,000 per person? With even $200,000 per person spent in an efficient and effective way that looks at actual data and evidence. Yeah, I love that. You, you're you're smart. You don't have to spend more money. You have to be just cost effective and efficient. Um, right. The next question is from Dr. John Wallace. He is an IPC emergency physician from Providence Little Company of Mary in Torrance. Um, I preface Dr. Wallace's question by noting that we're recording this podcast at the peak of the pandemic in California when the state is shut down and our emergency departments are overflowing. He notes that the homeless are a significant population in the emergency department and a major public health issue for COVID-19. And homeless patients can take up hours and even days of precious emergency department beds waiting for placement uh, or what we call a COVID hotel. Dr. Wallace asks if you can share your advice to the coronavirus task force as a medical physician and how that intersected with housing. Well, interesting, uh, as Dr. Wallace probably knows if you've looked at the data, the, uh, the incidence of COVID amongst the homeless is actually uh, something that's surprising. It's, it's not nearly what we anticipated. It's lower and because of outdoors and being outdoors is protective. Right. Right. right, exactly. So I, I think we need to concentrate particularly on the elderly and on the people who have comorbidities. But, you know, the, the homeless are no different than those who have homes. Uh, I think we, we have to be concentrating on the right thing. We need to be concentrating on the most vulnerable people and how do we protect them. We need to be talking to our young people, to our students and college students who are the elderly and who are the infirmed, who are the vulnerable people in your family and how should you relate to them? That's gonna do a lot more to stop the spread than virtually anything else. You know, locking everything down. Uh, you can see, uh, you know, California is one of the most locked down places there is and yet they have the highest incidence. So it's not just a matter of locking down, you gotta do it in an intelligent way. Right. So teach people how to protect the vulnerable individuals. But the people who are not vulnerable, send them out there. Let them get to work. Let them, you know, when you stop and you look at the statistics on suicide and domestic abuse and all depression, all these things that have just skyrocketed, you, you have to ask yourself, is the cure worse than the disease? You've got to be smart enough to be able to look at the whole picture. So I would love to see particularly the medical profession begin to start emphasizing that, you know, locking down the whole system, uh, forcing people to, to stay inside, it's not working. It's not well, working. It, if it was working, our ERs wouldn't be packed like they are. Exactly. What does work is teaching people who the vulnerable individuals are and how to protect them. That's where our emphasis should be. I think if we did that, we'd see a dramatic decrease. Do, do you support these COVID hotels? I've seen people who kind of want to have 
COVID or they stay and wait for a hotel for hours and hours waiting for an open hotel room in the emergency department? Well, I think that's because they feel that they don't have any other alternative. Um, And, you know, I think this this is a, a topic where there should be good discussion, but that discussion should be backed up by evidence, by data. And then there should be, you know, people should agree ahead of time. We're going to express our ideals on, on what should be done, but we are all going to take into consideration the data and we're going to use, utilize that to come up with the solution of whether we should be putting these people in hotels, whether they should be, uh, you know, allowed to return to where they are in the outside environment. Is there a way we can enhance the outside environment? You know, those are the kinds of questions that we should be asking. And that's the doctor in you. You're, you're a scientist through and through, no matter what subject you're, you're, you're talking about. Um, and I know that you and Candy both contacted COVID. So thank God that you both recovered. I've treated many patients now with a COVID. And what's scary is that we still do not have an absolute predictor of who's going to be fine and, and who's going to be sick. And, and the unknown is what that makes it scary. So I'm glad you're well. Yeah, and, you know, obviously it has a lot to do with the immune response that a person can generate. And, uh, you know, in my case, not only am I over 65, but I had a number of comorbidities that impact the immune system. So I was extremely high risk. And initially I got better um, because I took some naturopathic uh, uh, medication that attacks the virus itself. And I got dramatically better. What was it? And then the bottom fell out because I wasn't producing the uh, antibodies. And that's where the monoclonal antibodies came in extremely handy and they worked very, very well. Yeah, and again, thank God that you're well. Can you tell us what that naturopathic medicine was? Yeah, it was uh, extract of of oleander. And uh, what it actually does is it, it attacks the protein envelope that the virus is able to generate. Is that like uh, digoxin? Yeah, it seems to be effective on all viruses that are envelope viruses. Interesting. All right. The next question is from Dr. Jerry Gold. Dr. Gold is a psychologist and administrator at Scripps Behavioral Health and a champion for mental health community. Dr. Gold receives daily email updates on the number of emergency department patients that are waiting multiple days, days, not hours. People are spending days for a mental health bed. Drugs are involved in the majority of these patients as well. He explains that a bottleneck in the mental health system is not just the short-term mental health bed capacity, but the lack of long-term care residential facilities. So are you supportive of investing in programs that focuses on long-term housing for the chronically mentally ill? Without question. You know, we made a big mistake in the early 80s when we uh, just decided that we would turn all the mental patients out on the streets and that somehow that was being compassionate. Oh, I love hearing you say that. (laughs) You put somebody out there who really doesn't have the capacity to take care of themselves. That's ridiculous. Now, it is possible that many of those 
individuals with appropriate counseling and with appropriate management of their medications can go out on the streets, can actually become productive members, but it requires that kind of concentrated effort to do it. I think the status quo is is not helping. It's just, it's just heartbreaking seeing the same people a revolving door in the emergency department, and they deserve food and shelter and medicine and long term mental health housing. Absolutely, and a lot of times, you know, what they're met with is hostility and resentment. You know, these people are mentally ill. I know. Uh, it's so you know, sad. they're sick like somebody who has liver disease or kidney disease. You don't just dismiss them. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking when when we knowingly send them out, knowing they're going to be right back. The next question comes for Dr. Samir Mystery. He's an IPC emergency physician and vice chief of staff of Providence Little Company of Marion San Pedro. He noticed that for some frequent flyer emergency patients, government issued social security checks and stimulus pandemic checks have gone to pay for illicit drugs and alcohol rather than food and shelter. And these patients end up in the emergency department incurring further costs. And Dr. Mystery asks if you have thoughts or solutions on the front end and back end economic problem with, with drugs. Well, you know, unfortunately, you, you can't be with all of them all the time to see how they're going to spend uh, money. But there are other innovative solutions. For instance, uh, next week, we're going to be rolling out a special program uh, in which you take a QR code and these will be posted in various places. And you just take a photograph of it with your camera, with your uh, iPhone, and it will tell you where the nearest place is where you can get shelter, where you can get a bed, where you can get a meal, where you can get clothing, where you can get various services. Um, And that is much more effective than seeing a beggar on the street and giving him five bucks uh, which can go almost any place, but uh, if you can actually direct them to a shelter, to a place where people are trained to help them, I think you're doing a, a lot more good. Those are the kinds of things that we have to start thinking about. Well, that's, yeah, big, broad solutions. I'd also like to see a system where government money is not used for illicit drugs. Well, you know, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that we've been pushing uh, is getting these individuals into the hands of the faith community uh, and into various nonprofits and let them help because what they do that the government cannot do is develop relationships with people and develop trust with people. And people tend to respond much better in those situations. Is there anything else you want to tell us that your 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 proud accomplishments um, during your time as secretary? Well, I would uh, I would uh, encourage people to go to hud.gov, uh, our web page, and go to the accomplishments page. It's actually more than a page; it's a lot, a lot of things have happened. Awesome. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, when I came there, there was. Uh, an inactive uh, CFO uh, office. And as a result of that, financial controls were horrible. Uh, All of that has been fixed. 
this year was the first year we got a clean audit for the first time in eight years. Um, a lot of the uh, things that were just impossible, people thought were impossible to fix have been rectified. And that makes it easier to then disseminate the various programs. It makes a, a very big difference. And then I'm, I'm very happy with the uh, proliferation of the Envision Centers. We have almost a hundred of them now. These are places that amalgamate the impact of 17 different uh, federal agencies and state uh, federal cooperatives, uh, bring it into one place under one roof so that people who are in need in that community can access the things that already exist but are unavailable to them. So that mother with uh, three children who has no uh, training can find out how to get childcare, how to get her GED, how to get further training, how to become self-sufficient, how to pass it on to her children. So we begin to break the cycles. Um, very proud of the work that we've done with the Opportunity Zones. I've been able to elevate nearly a million people out of poverty, uh, providing a lot of job opportunities, but also getting people to invest dollars that they would normally invest somewhere else into the communities that are traditionally neglected so that we can begin to see revitalization occurring in those places, cutting down on innumerable regulations so that you can actually get things done at a cost that is actually reasonable. The Foster Youth to Independence Program, 20,000 young people, uh, graduate out of foster care every year. Within four years, a quarter of them end up homeless, even a larger number inadequately housed at a time when they're extremely vulnerable and trying to decide which way their life is going to go. And by providing them not only with a voucher for housing, but with the wraparound services that provide the kinds of support that you would normally have in a family uh, it makes a big difference. You can imagine when you were 18, if all of a sudden you were on your own with nothing and no support, yeah. uh, I'll, sometimes that probably doesn't gonna, not going to end up very well. Uh, and that's just you know a, a brief list. Go to that webpage, you'll see a, a gazillion things. And it's because we have so many good and dedicated people. I always say at HUD, we have the ugliest building, but the best people. I like the way your building looks, but uh, um, you have you have a lot to be to be proud of, um, of of your time as secretary. My my last question for you is: What is more stressful, doing pediatric brain surgery on conjoint twins, or being secretary and a presidential cabinet member? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question. There's no question that in terms of level of, of difficulty. Uh, the neurosurgery is, is there. But in terms of stress, uh, you know, dealing with bureaucracy and illogical people is much more stressful. For me, I, I similar. I thought that that's what you'd say. For me, no comparison. Being an ER doctor is way more stressful than working at the White House. Um, <laughs> you, you tweeted something a few years ago that really made me pause. It was, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 
I say this prayer in Hebrew to my kids every Friday night. And I never really saw it in English till I saw it on, on your chat. And so as you transition to the next chapter in your life, I want to give you the same blessing to you and to Candy. Well, thank and, you. I appreciate that. Thank you for all the things that you're doing. And, and hopefully we can get our nation, you know, back on a track of, you know, loving your fellow man, caring about your neighbor, developing your God-given talents to the utmost so that you become valuable to the people around you and having values and principles that govern your life. When we have that, we won't see all this hatred and division. Amen to that. And Secretary Dr. Ben Carson, thank you for joining us on High Truths. I very much appreciate and thank you, Dr. Carson, from the bottom of my heart for your service, leadership, generosity to our country. Thank you. This podcast was taking place in Secretary Carson's official capacity. Under the Hatch Act, he was prohibited from discussing politics or the presidential race. That's why you see that I didn't ask him about politics, but just the issues that are important to high truths. I did request to approach the topic of marijuana, but since marijuana remains a federally legal drug, his staff politely requested that I avoid that topic. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. A special shout out to IEPC, Independent Emergency Physician Consortium, small emergency physician practices powered by large multi-group collaboration. Visit IEPC.org to learn more. No doubt that the staff in the emergency departments are our nation's heroes during this pandemic, every day, every shift, and every patient. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.